Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at a small slice of American writing using the Library of America as my source material. Specifically, I look at 100 pages in each episode, as the title suggests. Now, currently, I am looking at the works of James Weldon Johnson, a very, very interesting man who lived from that not a very long life. He, he died, I think, in his 50s, maybe? No. Sorry. No, it's his, his later 60s. Um, but he did accomplish a lot in that life. He was an artist, a poet, a novelist for at least one novel. He, he wrote a very long autobiography. He worked in the consular service for a number of years in Latin America at a very crucial time in the expansion of American empire. He was a prominent figure in the NAACP and, you know, a, a journalist a teacher, a principal of a school. Um, so he did a whole lot in his life and he ventured in a lot of different areas. And he's not primarily perhaps known as a writer, but this diversity of the writing of what he's produced, I think is really special. And it's something I really like about him. Like in this collection for the Library of America, it's only, it's only 880 pages or so. It's one of the shorter volumes in the Library of America. But in here we have an autobiography, a novel, poems, songs, uh, essays, articles, nonfiction, kind of sociological writings. So he, he really did a lot in, in the time he had. And that makes him, I think, a very, very interesting figure. And in a way, kind of a nice contrast to the other two black writers I just finished looking at in, a, in the previous series, W.B. Du Bois. Now, he was kind of diverse, too, but he's known more primarily as his, for his essays. And Charles Chestnut, who's really known as a novelist and a short story writer. You almost get the sense that had Johnson, if you just took out a, two or three of his accomplishments and the things he was known for out of his life, he still would have been a well-known and important figure in, in American history, and particularly in, in African-American history. So this is uh, my third episode in the series on Johnson. I, I've already examined his his novel, The Autobiography of the Ex-Colored Man. And then in the last episode, I looked at the first part of his autobiography along this way. Now, this autobiography was published in 1933. Um, towards the end of his life, he died, I think, in 1936. It's, and I was sort of complaining last time that I thought it was a little bit too long. And I will say, though, you know, I read it a couple years ago and I've come back to it. And it was hard to get into the second time, especially the first part. But when you get into the second, third, and third, and fourth parts, I think the book really takes off, especially in part three, where there's so much interesting stuff to say about his life as a counselor official and a diplomat in the early 20th century and during the Taft years. And in the transition to Wilson, and at a time when the United States was really pushing itself as a colonial power in Latin America, this, this man was part of the State Department. And it had a profound effect on him. It had an effect on how he looked at race relations. And, and it, you know, he, he was put in difficult decisions where he had to make choices of, of whether to do his duty or, or not. And, and I think we can maybe judge some of the decisions he made um, from the hindsight of kind of this anti-imperial you know, later half of the 20th century. But I think we can understand the decisions he made. And yet he, he did, I think, at the end of the day, you know, approach that and make a judgment on what the United States was doing in Latin America in, the, in those years. 
So I think this book kind of is a slow burn. It might still be a little too long. 500 pages for an autobiography is, is a bit much, I think. But when we start getting into his, the things he did in his life um, after he left college, I think the book becomes quite a bit stronger. So the first part of Along This Way covers his background, his early life, his childhood, his early education, and the, his family pressuring him to go into a job in religion and to try to become a preacher. He turns his back on that. He starts to really pursue his own education. He eventually attends a college prep program at Atlanta University, Atlanta University and then he eventually goes to Atlanta University for college, and he has all kind of the regular college experiences. And at the end of that chapter, or part one, I should say, I think it was chapter 11, he laments a little bit that so many educated African-Americans were being trained really to be teachers and really trained with this idea that you have to sacrifice for uplift. And what he said we weren't taught is how to be successful and how to make money and how to enrich ourselves. But that was something that white people were being taught. Yet, because they were black, they were being taught, no, you have this duty to to kind of uplift the race. And I don't think he thinks that's a bad project. He, he just laments that everyone was sort of forced into that, that career track. And as much as he loved Du Bois, and I think at one point in, the autobiogra in this autobiography, he says that Souls of Black Folk is one of the most important works on race, you know, in America. He, nevertheless, he, he was a little bit critical of the way people like Du Bois talked about this kind of duty to, especially of this what Du Bois called the talented tenth, this duty to be a vanguard of racial uplift. And, you know, he thinks there's, there's more to life. And the fact that he, he, he is able to be a political activist and a lawyer for civil rights, but he's also going to create art and, you know, help his brother and try to make money. For a while, he's a career man and he's really focused on trying to push his career along. So he he is in a way trying to be different things and to fulfill his own personal ambitions while, you know, also doing his work for the NAACP. And, and you always see that in his art, where his art will have a lot of racial messages in them in his poetry and things like that. But, you know, it's it's also about enriching him and helping his brother in his career and and they have more materialistic goals i don't think that's something that's that's necessarily shameful and i like how johnson presents that those that that these decisions as, as not shameful or not like i was betraying my race or something and we even get that when he talks about his time as the consular official where you can't help but read it from our present standpoint and say dude you are really propping up American empire. And I think he realizes that, but at the same time, he, he had so much commitment to his career and he saw, you know, he wanted to move up the, the chain in. And maybe part of that was he wanted to go up in a profession that was where the higher ranks were closed off to black people. And he wanted to prove he could get up there. And he does kind of reach a, a limit at some point, but he moves up as, as far as he's able before he, he retires. So I, I think there's an interesting um, conflict, I guess, in, in Johnson. And Johnson doesn't really present it as a conflict, but maybe from our point of view, we, we see it as a little bit more of a conflict, certainly from Du Bois's point of view. I mean, at one point in Du Bois talking to college graduates says, you know, like we, we're sometimes educated for a job to make money. And, and he presents that as a very vulgar choice to make. Johnson doesn't seem to think that. But that's the theme of, of part one. 
Now, part two of Along the Way covers the years 1895 to, to around 1905, I think. So it's about 10, 10 years. So it's his, his 20s and, and into his early 30s is covered in, in part two of Along This Way. It cut, I think there's about maybe eight, nine chapters in this section. So what does he do? Well, when he graduates from college, Atlanta University, he goes back to Jacksonville, where his family is. And he's often returning to Jacksonville throughout his life. And he documents all the times he goes back. And he, he, really, much, he, he really is tied to his family and his hometown and the people he met there. And he often stays in contact with some of the, the boys from his childhood. Now, I didn't really talk much about them in the previous episode. I probably should have. But one is Ricardo, and he was a Cuban. And actually, he learned Spanish from him. And this is going to be career help for him later on. I think there's also a lot in the autobiography of the Ex-Colored Man about Spanish-speaking people or Cubans in Florida. And that character gets involved and, you know, starts cigar rolling and learns Spanish as a cigar roller in a factory and even becomes a reader. And I, I think he's pulling that stuff maybe from his discussions with, with this man, Ricardo. There's another character who's always just identified with a D. Now, this D person is Douglas Wetmore. Douglas Wetmore is... He's not the ex-colored man. Uh, there's not much overlap in his life, but Johnson was inspired in some ways from by the life of his friend Wetmore. And and one thing that Wetmore has in common with the ex-colored band is he was very light-skinned and could pass, and he could get away with being white. And, you know, and this is something that was like a conflict when he published the autobiography of the ex-colored band, because he presented it basically as a true autobiography, not as a novel. And he thought at the time that if people knew that he wrote it, people, no one would buy it because they would, they would think they're being cheated or something or because Johnson himself couldn't pass but this friend Wetmore did so he's pulling some of the experience and, and some of his impressions of Wetmore into that now I, I'm not sure why he doesn't identify him by name here he identifies other people by name but he's one of two characters or people I should say they're not like characters but two people in his life that he doesn't fully identify um, but so if you're if you're reading this and you want to know who this D character is that that's who it is um, but anyways, after graduating from um, Atlanta University, he goes back to Jacksonville and becomes a principal at Stanton School. And he has to go through this process of learning to be a teacher. And he is, I, even though he's a young man, he's a very attentive. Now, that tells us something about the market for teachers in, in the Black South in these years, the end, the end, end years of the 19th century, that just out of college, this guy could get a job as a principal. Um, I'd be interested to look more into the actual job market for college graduates, but it seems there really was a, a dearth of a dearth of college-educated people for these types of jobs, and that's why he was able to get it right away. Um, now, he, he is a very active principal, and he actually tries to transform Stanton School and improve it. He's very much bothered by this kind of learning by rote. Now, he doesn't really know how to teach, and he tries to learn how to teach as the principal. And he's learning from the teachers, he's learning from the students, and he's interacting with them and sometimes teaching classes. And kind of he experiments with 
teaching math, for instance, and he learns the failures of rote education, and he starts to make changes to the curriculum, makes changes to the school. One big thing he does is kind of introduce this this college prep program that he had at Atlanta University for for students at his school, so they could have the same advantages. So he's a very, very active principal, and I, I think he, he sounds like he was a very successful principal as well, and someone who's very hands-on and willing to get his hands dirty and not just delegating things to the teachers, very much interested in education, very conscientious, conscientious and he worked there for you know, almost, almost a decade. Oh, not, not quite a decade, maybe six years or so. He would eventually do other things. One thing that's going to happen a lot in these in his early 20s when he's the principal of Stanton School is he's going to spend the summers doing other things with his life. And often he would spend these, these summers in New York City with his brother Rosamond, who's trying to make, who's a little bit younger, but he's trying to make his career as a musician. And Johnson's often providing like the lyrics to songs and he's helping to write librettos for operas that Rosamond is working on. He's, you know, he's kind of doing the writing side of things, even though Johnson himself had had a fair degree of musical talent. Rosamond, his, his brother, was much more talented. If, if you know, for instance, Lift Every Voice and Sing, his most famous poem, perhaps, you know, he wrote this, the words as a poem initially, and it was originally read, and then Rosamond later wrote the music to accompany, accompany it. So he's often spending time in other places. He's moving around a lot. Now, at home, back at home, he finds out that his father has turned towards Christianity. Uh, when he was young and growing up, his father was a waiter, kind of back at a hotel, I think. And then, he, but he father, his father became a preacher. And that's very interesting because there's so, so many people wanted Johnson to become a preacher. And his grandmother, for instance, pegged him to be a preacher in the future and tried to give him a religious educa education. But Johnson himself turned out to be an agnostic, essentially an atheist. Um, although I think I, he identifies as agnostic. Now we get an interesting story that's just worth reading. He gets this story from his mother. Um, quote, my mother talked to me a great deal about a matter she had mentioned in letters written to me while I was still at the university, but concerning which she could not be as free in writing as in talking. It was much in her mind. One of her best friends, Alonzo Jones, was involved. He was one of a number of colored men who, because of the steady change from the old and rather favorable attitude towards Negroes in Jacksonville, resounded to prepare to meet the worst. They ordered a rifle and a quantity of ammunition for each man in the group. Alonzo Jones made the great error of having the whole shipment consigned to him. This action was in Dicative of the man. He was impulsive and, and cautious. It is probable that some of these men were timid and he rashly assumed the entire responsibility But he had real courage and he would never hum humbly or quietly tolerate any infringement upon what he believed to be his rights At that time he was a man around 50 stoutish very dark and rather morose in disposition His father had been a bricklayer and a successful man who had brought several pieces of property on the streets That became one of the principal thoroughfares in the city the son followed the father's trade and worked industriously to improve the property that had been left to him. When the incidents I'm relating took place, he was worth perhaps fifty or $60,000. Events followed fast after the arrival of the rifles. A Negro walking around the street eating a banana throws the peel on the sidewalk. A white policeman orders him to pick it up. He refuses. The policeman draws his club in a struggle and ensures. The Negro is down and being severely clubbed by the policeman. He somehow gets hold of the policeman's pistol and shoots him through the heart. The Negroes rush to the Duval County Jail. Excitement runs high and hourly. Crackers from the surrounding country pour into town. Lynching is in the air. The county jail is bounded on three sides by the 
houses of Negroes and several hundred colored men with rifles, shotguns, and revolvers man the windows and roofs of the houses. Women supply them with food and hot coffee. Some of the more daring of these women pray to cans of kerosene, vowing that if the prisoner is lynched, they will lay the town to ashes. Three or four companies of militia are called out and thrown around the jail. They make no attempt to dislodge or disperse the armed Negroes on guard. Some of the Negro leaders confer with the militia officers and declare that together with the troops or without them, they will defend the prisoner against any mob. The prisoner is not lynched. End quote. And there's a little bit more to the story, but it's a really great example of, of the racial tensions and the capacity of black communities to really try to use the threat of force and to use organization to stop uh, a lynching. So it's kind of an astounding little little story here. And I think one of the nice things about Along This Way is how much, how often, I should, I mean, Johnson includes these little vignettes and these stories and these windows into into American life. They're the kinds of things that Chestnut would write a whole novel about, but he just throws them in as part of his autobiography, often presenting them in a very matter-of-fact way. Wow, I'm getting, um, I'm, I'm really taking my time on this part too. Um, what else is in chapter 12? He talks a little bit about elite blacks, black society. Um, he spends a lot of time with Douglas Wetmore, his good friend. Now, Wetmore becomes less and less important figure in his life as he gets older. But in, still in his 20s, D. Wetmore is a big part of his life. He starts a, a newspaper while he's in Jacksonville called The Daily American. It quickly folds and, and fails, but he tried his he tried to start this daily newspaper for black people in Jacksonville. I guess they didn't have a, a newspaper. And eventually he starts to move into law and he studies law with a lawyer named Thomas Ledwell. And he eventually, you know, takes his board exams and, and gets a, a, a law, you know, a law certification as well. So he's continuing his education while he's teaching at and being the principal of Stanton School. So he's still quite active and still continuing his education and trying different things. And, you know, even though he got his first good job, he's not really content with where that is. And he seems to have other other ambitions. And that's what we see a lot of in part two are just this all these ambitions of Johnson to do other things in this life. And it, he comes off as kind of restless and anxious and, and all that. But I think it it's part of what really makes him such a fascinating figure. Okay, chapter 13 is really about his burgeoning relationship with Rosamond. Uh, of course, he, you know, Rosamond was always the younger brother. But starting in like 1895, Rosamond comes back from his own studies in the conservatory. And he starts to bring music education to Jacksonville. And one thing he, he did was be much more exclusive about than the average tutor would be about his students. And he raised the price. So I think he'd almost quadrupled the price for his lessons. But... He also was much more ex exclusive and selective, and this kind of raised his reputation and the quality. And actually, he was quite successful in doing that. So he became a teacher of music around the same time that that his brother, Jim, was, was the principal. Um, and increasingly, Rosamond would set, would set Jim's lyrics to music in the poems he wrote. So this is around 1899. Or so that he's, he's, he's relating these stories. There's a little bit of overlap for times, but you know, it's mostly chronological. He completes his legal studies and he begins to work on an opera with Rosamond, an opera called Tolosa. And again, in the summers, he would move to New York City and he would spend a lot of time there in the summer. And they would 
spend a lot of money, try to make money, put on shows, write operas, write songs, do concerts. And often they, they at the end of the summer, they had no money. They were broke and he would come back, have to borrow money to go back to Jacksonville. Yet they'd be ready to start again. And I just I'm really attracted to the the ambition we see here uh, among these two young men. And they seem to be really kind of an inseparable pair. You almost see no rancor or conflict between Rosamond and and Jim throughout the entire entire book. The image also of New York is is rather interesting. Now, this image of New York is before the Great Migration, right? You, there's already a black Manhattan by this point, but not nearly as large as it would be after the Great Migration. And that's that's when you have the Harlem Renaissance. But the roots of of the Harlem Renaissance are already sort of there in the neighborhoods of, of black Manhattan. And Johnson would eventually write a whole book on on black New York called called ex exactly black Manhattan. For instance, he would write he wrote this about New York in his autobiography. These glimpses of life that I caught during our last two or three weeks in New York were not wholly unfamiliar to Rosamond, but they showed me a new world, an alluring world, a tempting world, a world of greatly lessened restraints, a world of fascinating perils, but above all, a world of tremendous artistic potentialities. Up to this time, outside the polemical essays on race questions, I had not written a single line that had any relation to the Negro. I now began to grope towards a realization of the importance of the American Negro's cultural background and his creative folk art and to speculate on the superstructure of conscious art that might be reared upon them. My first step in this general direction was taken in a song that Bob Cole, my brother, and I wrote in conjunction during the last days of New York. It was an attempt to bring a higher degree of artistry to Negro songs, especially with regard to the text. The Negro songs then were arrayed were known as coon songs. They were concerned with jamborees of various sorts, and the play of razors and gastronomical delights of chicken, pork chops, and watermelon, and with the experience of Red Hot Mamas and their never-too-faithful papas. These songs were, for the most part, crude, ranxious, bawdy, and obscene. Such elements frequently are excellencies in folk songs, but rarely so in conscious imitations. The song we did was a lovely little song called Louisiana Lies, and was a forerunner of a style that displaced the old coon songs. So I don't have Louisiana Lies um, for you to listen to, but I, I can get under the bamboo tree. I, I haven't been able to find that many of the Bob Cole, um, Rosamond, and... and Jim Johnson songs, but there are a few. Um, and here I'll just listen to a bit of Under the Bamboo Tree. About, I think it was composed in like 1901. All right, that's just a bit of it. You can go to YouTube and, and listen to it yourself. It's also during this time that he, he writes Lift Every Voice and Sing, which is the bumper for this, this series, at least a part of it's the bumper for the series. And I do urge you to go listen to all of Lift Every Voice and Sing if you haven't heard it yet. It is um, one of the great songs of the era. It was originally written as just a poem that would be sung or, or spoken you know, it was spoken to honor Abraham Lincoln. I think it's like his birthday or something, but it was a poem on Abraham Lincoln. And and later on, it was, was set to music. So he was actually quite proud. He actually says, quote, nothing I've done has paid me back 
so fully in satisfaction as being the part creator of this new song. I am always deeply thrilled when I hear it sung by Negro children. I'm lifted by their voices, and I'm also carried back and enabled to live again through the exquisite emotions I felt at the birth of the song. My brother and I, in talking, have often marveled at the results that have followed what, what we considered an incidental effort, an effort made under stress and with no intention other than to meet the needs of a particular moment. The only comment we can make is that we wrote better than we knew, end quote. And I just think that's a great statement for all artists. You know, how often do we do our best work when, when we don't know it, right? I mean, I've even, you know, gone back and looked at my own old, like, college papers last summer, and I was reading them, and I'm like, this was really some really good stuff. I'm not, com- not comparing it to, to this poem, but, you know, I, I didn't think at the time I was writing good stuff, but, you know, it, when you read something like that, it holds up, and you're like, where did this come from? And it's, you, there's a disconnect between the time you wrote it and the person who wrote it and you, and you now, and I, I think that's something that Johnson is, is talking about. Here. So the big picture here, of course, is that he's he's spending the summers with Rosamond in artistic things and, and mostly writing the lyrics to these songs that his brother will set to music. Chapter 14 talks uh, a little bit about New York more broadly. We, we do see him develop in this chapter as a poet. He reads Walt Whitman and he starts to become more conscious in the way he kind of emulates Walt Whitman and, and copies him and, and tries to incorporate what he learns from reading Whitman into his own work. And remember, Whitman is not that far from Johnson's life, right? I'm, I'm not sure when Whitman died, but he must be into the 1870s or so. No, sorry, 1892. So he um, would have just died when Johnson was still in college. So he was much more of a contemporary um, poet at the time. So he starts to, you know, become a better poet. Now, it's also a chapter that talks about the soul, racial violence in New York as New York is changing, as its racial demography is changing. It's not yet the Great Migration, but there's still, you know, incidents of violence. In fact, he talks about the racial history and the, the history of racial riots and racial violence in New York City going back to the colonial period. And I think it's not often that Johnson does this kind of historical reflection in this book, but here's one of the moments he does. He says, quote, this was the fourth great clash in New York involving the Negro. The first was the so-called Negro insurrection of 1712. The second was the so-called conspiracy of the Negro slaves to burn New York and murder its inhabitants in 1741. The third was the draft riots of 1863. The riot of 1900 grew out of an altercation between a white policeman in plain clothes and a Negro in which the former was killed. The outbreak was, beyond doubt, fomented by New York police, but it had more than local significance. It was, in fact, only the single indication of the national spirit of the times towards the Negro. By 1900, the Negro civil status had fallen until it was lower than it had been at any time since the Civil War, and without noticeable protest from any part of the country, the race had been surrendered to disfranchisement and Jim Crowism, to outrage and violence to the fury of the mob. End quote. So, yeah, certainly the nadir of American race relations, at least since uh, the end of slavery. So a good chapter. Um, so chapter 15 sort of continues Johnson's reflections on racial violence and antagonism. This one, though, is about his his life in Jacksonville. And what happened in 1901 was the Stanton School was destroyed along with much of the city of Jacksonville in a fire. 
and his so school's destroyed and of course school has can't go on with the school destroyed and you know it has to be rebuilt and all that and how it's rebuilt and the politics of it being rebuilt is something that's going to be shaped by racial tensions in Jacksonville as well but the most important event he relates here is he's talking he, he has a conversation with a black journalist a woman and she was very very light-skinned all right here's how he writes about her a very handsome woman she was with eyes and hair so dark that they blanched the whiteness of her face that's the only physical description we we really get of her but anyway she's taken by most people as white he's sitting down and talking with her and then basically a mob develops around this and horrified that this black man is talking to this white woman and they actually threaten to lynch um, james johnson at this point and he barely it's the way he's described here he barely gets away with his with his life now you know it's it's you can go read the event it's, it's kind of actually shocking that that this happened to him but maybe not surprising uh, we've seen you know but it's we've read about racial violence in these other works especially chestnut he wrote a lot about it but this is you know and you know du bois knew about this but he didn't have a personal experience johnson did and and he relates it here so i think that makes this work um, rather significant and of course, it's something that that happens to the ex-colored man, where he witnesses a lynching taking place. So it's it's something very tangible and very visible. It's not just a an intellectual thing for black Southerners. Is the point I'm trying to make? Um, but he realizes at this point that sexuality is tied up with this racial violence and the color line in the South. Quote: Through it all, I discerned one clear and certain truth. In the core of the heart of the American race problem, the sex factor is rooted. Rooted so deeply, it is not always recognized when it shows at the surface. Other factors are obvious and are the ones we dare to deal with. But regardless of how we deal with these, the race situation will continue to be acute so long as the sex factor persists. Taken alone, it furnishes a sufficient means spring for the rationalization of all the complexities of white race superiority. It may be innate. I do not know. But I do know that there is bitter strong and bitter and its strength and bitterness are magnified and intensified by white man's perception more or less of the negro complex of sexual superiority and that's that's what he says about it he doesn't dwell on it it's just one paragraph but there's a lot to potentially unpack in that that little passage he's he's a bit i think he doesn't want to say too much more about it to be honest but it's there 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 is more to say i think um, what else? So chapter 16, he, you know, the, the fire burned down the school, so he can't very well be a teacher. So he ends up going back to New York City. He's working again with Rosamond. And we see him talk about black Manhattan in interesting ways again, talking about the rise of black institutions of culture, of art, hotels that cater to black audience that have black ownership. He talks about this kind of rising artistic class. So, you know, he's talking really... 15 to 20 years before the Harlem Renaissance, the foundation of the stuff is being built. So if you're interested in the foundation of the Harlem Renaissance, I think this is a work that you might have to grapple with, or at least, you know, look at what Johnson was saying about New York at the time, because he's really focusing in this chapter in particular on the rise of black institutions in, in New York City. Um, but mostly he's talking about, 
his own involvement with various black write, writers and artists, particularly Bob Cole, Rosamond, and Johnson. These are the this is that triumvirate that was producing a lot most of the work that he was involved with. But there's others throughout the city that he that he references. Quote, the Marshall gradually became New York's center for Negro artists. For a generation, that's, this, that center had been in Negro Bohemia, near the Tenderloin. There, in various clubs, Negro, theatrical, and musical talent foregathered. The clubs of Negro Bohemia were a diverse sort. There were gambling clubs and poker halls, a fine distinction between the two being involved. There were clubs frequently, particularly by the followers of the ring and the turf, where one got a close-up of the noted Negro prize fighters and jockeys, and then on and on and on. This is the kind of institutional foundation of of black Manhattan. And eventually that's going to lead to the Harlem Renaissance. And we'll, we'll see what he says about it in, in future chapters. Eventually though, Jacksonville is rebuilt as is the Stanton school. And he has to make a choice of, of, you know, whether to go back to that, that profession. Now he, he does go back to Jacksonville to, to talk about this, he's still the principal of this school, after all. And the city wants to shut down or move the Stanton School or remake it. And when they do rebuild it, they rebuild it to be much smaller with less land. And there's a bunch of legal conflicts about the land. And basically, the way Johnson talks about it is the government of Jacksonville decided that the land and the property was too valuable and too good to give to a black school. And so they worked to kind of constrict the land. And this really offended Johnson and was a big part of his decision to leave his profession as, as the principal. Also at this time, I, I think it's D who says, why don't you just go into law, give up this, you have a law degree. I think I forgot to mention that. He was one of the first since Reconstruction black lawyers admitted to the Florida bar. Maybe the first since Reconstruction. But he, he didn't really have the interest in the law either. And where his interest at this point in his life really lied was with Rosamond and what he was doing in New York City. So he gives up his job as, a, as the principal of the school. He resigns from that job. He, he gives up his pursuits of, of law, though he is going to have this kind of legal background, which he'll take with him into future professions. And he just starts to focus on his art. And this is around the time that Rosamond is starting to make more and more money from his artistic work and able to support them essentially. So he chooses to resign from principal of the school, focus on art. He even studies and continues his education at Columbia while he's in New York City. And it's at this time that he and his brother are beginning to face uh, success. And he, Page after page of this part of the book talks about the different songs they write, the different um, concerts they put on, um, the operas they work on, and all of these things. So there's a lot of detail that, that you might be really tempted to just gaze over. And to be honest, I, I kind of scanned over a lot of this section too. But if, you're, if you want to you know, look up some of these songs, that might be a really fun project to see what you can find on YouTube or other or online, or if, you, if you're just old records and things, maybe you can find some of this stuff. And um, you know, here's just a list of some of them. The Maiden with the Dreamy Eyes, Mandy, Won't You Let Me Be Your Bow, Nobody's Looking But the Owl and the Moon, My Castle on the Nile, Under the Bamboo Tree, The Congo Love Song. A lot of songs about Africa here. I, I think there's something about, he doesn't really analyze it, but there's some concept of, 
of Africa here. And you have even, you even have that in Lift Every Voice and Sing, by the way, where I'll, I'll just find it. It's more, it's more subtle in List of Voice and Sing. Out of our gloomy past, now we stand at last, where the white gleam of our bright star is cast. Oh, the last line. I was thinking of the last line. True to our God, true to our native land. Is that America or is that Africa? I think that's really open to interpretation. Certainly, the, this, this grouping, these three artists, seem to have a, an interest in, in Africa. He starts to think about writing autobiography next color man it took him a really long time to write this novel it seems that he's it's something he's bouncing around with for many many years and he talks about it throughout his autobiography so i think it was probably about 10 years from conception to finally being published and then another few years before he he declared that he was the actual writer of the book that it was that was a novel not a true autobiography so chapter 13 is about his success, his rising standard of living, how they finally had money to kind of upgrade their lives and enjoy life in New York City a little bit more. He also, though, starts to face greater and greater opposition and hostility to his success, both institutionally and socially. And so a really touching and meaningful paragraph in which you feel the pressure of both the social hostility to his success and some of the, the institutional because it wasn't just, you know, the, the, the glare of, of white New York on them. There was actually, because they, they have to get bookings at theaters and they, they care about, you know, what cut of the, of the tickets they get. And they, their audience is black, so they have to care about where blacks are allowed to sit and, and enjoy music. So there's a lot of institutional factors that are getting in the way of what could have been a much more, much more success for them. And so it's something to keep in mind when we think about black artists in this time as to how much greater and how much more significant they could have been if they weren't facing these kind of institutional challenges. And here's what he writes, quote, it'd be difficult to see why this agency should display such solicitude for in the conditions were already humiliating enough. In the Broadway houses, it was a practice to sell Negroes first balcony seats, but if their race was plainly discernible to refuse to sell them seats in the orchestra. The Metropolitan Opera House, Carnegie Hall, and, the, and in general, the East Side and West Side theaters were exceptions. The same practice was and still is common in most of the cities of the North. It is not necessary to mention the practice in Southern cities. In Washington, where race discrimination is hardly less than in any city in the South, Negroes are not allowed to enter the National Theater, nor was the rule broken when the Green Pastures recently played two weeks engagement at that house. In that case, colored people made strong protest and the management comprised, compromised by setting aside one night for Negroes only stating that even this concession would offend many of the regular patrons. Just how these patrons could feel like that at the same time, be able to feel in any degree the beauty and ecstasy conveyed through the acting of Richard B. Harrison and the great Negro cast of the play presents a mystery of the human soul, which only God or perhaps the devil can explain, end quote. And, you know, there's, there's both the institutional pressures here of these theaters, right? And there were, and then they're responding to public perceptions and public demands uh, to enforce segregation. Nevertheless, we get the, you know, Johnson talks about here how it really wouldn't be until the 1920s that black mu musicals and mu music would be as popular as it was at the time he was active in New York. So he really was in a kind of a golden age, but in many ways, 
society was still trying to figure out the place of black artists in mainstream popular music and public performances and theater and all that. Now, chapter 18, or chapter, sorry, chapter 19, we're getting towards the end of, of part two, by the way. It has a, chapter 19 opens with a very fascinating section on old black families in New York City, and he's talking here about black families that were like free before the Civil War and maybe had a little bit of property. Usually there was a kind of a class tension between the more recent immigrants and these older black families. And overall, their attitudes towards the changes going on in New York City. So anyways, um, he goes to, so it's 10 years now after his graduation from Atlanta University, and he's, he's invited to get an honorary degree. So he's famous enough to, to have gotten this. And he actually meets W.E.B. Du Bois um, when he goes down to Atlanta University. And that's a very important moment in his life. He talks a little bit here, and he's getting more and more political as the book goes on. He, the, the book actually starts out quite apolitical. And of course, he's, he's a young child. Why would he be politics? So we're really seeing the political consciousness um, revealed over time. And even, you know, when he was a teacher, it wasn't a big part. He was interested in his work and his professional performance and all that. He, politics kind of trickle in bit by bit throughout it. And he, t you know, and so we don't have many moments earlier in the book, but we got more of them in the second half where he overtly talks about politics. And here's one. And in a way, he's addressing black nationalists, but he's also addressing segregation as a whole and just saying that how what a kind of a, a lazy and silly and stupid idea it is to to sustain segregation, in part because in most things, you can't really do this. You know, most of America, the black community was small enough that it was ridiculous, preposterous even to, to sustain segregation. But also, you know, are you going to create a whole separate law school, a separate medical law school for, for, black, for, the, for black students? You know, this kind of stuff becomes preposterous. And of course, this would be part of the, the legal argument that would eventually undermine segregation in the courts in the 1950s and 60s. Quote, to tell Negroes that they ought to go get their own opera house in Harlem if they want to hear grand opera would not, would not be less unreasonable than to tell them to get their own rail cars if they want to ride in the Pullman cars. And just about as reasonable as telling them to have hotels in all cities and towns in which a Negro traveler may perchance stop over. Uh, he meets Jack Johnson, the boxer. And, and Jack Johnson was someone who's talked about, Du Bois talked about. And I mentioned him in... I think the last, final episode of my series on, on W.B. Du Bois, the, the article in The Crisis about Jack Johnson. And then we have Rosamond going on a European tour and with Bob Cole and um, Jim. Jim Johnson goes along. James goes along. And once again, it, what it seems to come up all the time is this experience of black artists and creators and writers when they go to Europe this feeling of comparative freedom, comparative respect, uh, the kind of that weight off their shoulders when they get away from Jim Crow. I mean, it's it's one thing if you live in it, right? But it, it, you're, you're kind of used to it over time. And it, it, it's horrible and, and, and burdensome. But in a way, unless you get out of it, you don't realize that there's other ways societies can be constructed. And, and, and it doesn't have to be that way, right? And that's an experience they have as well, and it's related in this 
in this chapter, chapter 19. So it, we see this again and again, though. It's so common among writers. It, it even goes back to, like, like I think Frederick Douglass. He went to, to Europe once and gave a speech there, and that was his realization there as well, all the way back to the, you know, to before the Civil War. Uh, many jazz musicians enjoyed Europe. Baldwin enjoyed Europe, James Baldwin. So it's it's there. Um, that that contrast was really sharp. And then in chapter twenty, we we see Rosamond and and James Johnson being commissioned to write songs for the Roosevelt campaign. So again, we we see how famous they are and, and how significant they are. And they actually write two songs for um, Roosevelt's campaign. This is the election of nineteen twelve. So the election was, sorry, it couldn't be 1912. It's 1905, sorry. 1912 is, is the second time he ran. Um, of course, Roosevelt became president in 1901 when an assassin killed McKinley. He served out the rest of that term, and then he was reelected in, in 1904. So that must be the year that they had to write these, these songs. And they were quite successful. And eventually, though, he, he moves into his next phase of his career, and that is getting a counselor job in Venezuela. So he ends his partnership with his brother. He takes on the mantle of a diplomat. And, you know, he got it because he has good Spanish. He also was kind of cashing in political favors he had built up. And he had that legal background. So he was a good candidate to be uh, an American consul in a town in, in Venezuela. So that is where we're going to pick up when we look at part three of of along this way where he starts to do his diplomatic work in Latin America. And so I'm going to, that, that kind of ends my coverage of part two. I'm all, I only talked about a small part of actually what's in this book. So it's really rich and I missed a lot. I, I, I skipped over a lot, but it's, it's certainly very, very, very powerful and meaningful. And this is a book that I started rereading and if you listen to my last episode, you know, I was kind of frustrated with it, but it takes off really. If you can get through that first part, I think it, it really becomes a powerful story, especially in two and three. So what we'll look at in the next episode will be, of course, part three of Along This Way. It's the shortest of the four parts of the book, a little bit less than 100 pages. Um, but it focuses on his diplomatic career in Venezuela and Nicaragua and his interactions with the American Empire. It also focuses a little bit on his romantic life and his, his, he gets married in those years. His father dies and he starts to kind of has to deal with the, the death of his father. And he writes his book, The Autobiography of the Ex-Color Band, and gets that finally published. So all that is going on in the, I guess it's six seven years where he's in the consular service until 1912. So that will be what I'll look at in part two to three. But in the meantime, if you have any of your own comments about James Walden Johnson or my review of this book or have you read Along This Way or any other Johnson's work, if you have opinions about it, please leave your comments below or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I, I always love to, to hear from you. But it, uh, in any case, thanks for supporting this podcast and thanks for listening and... I'll see you next time when I look at part three of a long
Let's go.